Welcome to this week's show. In this one, guest host John Kendall and I sit down with local filmmaker Jeremy Blake. Jeremy's main forte is in sound, but he's also kind of a jack of all trades when it comes to filmmaking. His onset experience includes everything from camera support to figuring out how to crash a car into a building. The first film he worked on was Proper Binge in 2012. Nowadays, he continues to work on films, but he also teaches film and audio at King Technical High School in Anchorage, Alaska. Okay, time to shout out the crude company men. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, David North, Crystal Liska, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Shane Robinson, and Sharon Liska. Thank you all for your support. This podcast would not be possible without you. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. By subscribing to the Crude Patreon, you're helping independent grassroots Alaskan journalism. A quick note here. I'm off next week, but will return on April 10th with Crude's newest podcast, Lost Anchorage. In each episode of Lost Anchorage, I have a conversation with different professionals, law enforcement, and those affected by crime in order to build a better understanding of the mechanisms and causation of crime in Anchorage, Alaska. Okay, back to Jeremy Blake. Jeremy's an Alaskan filmmaker who's worked in all different forms of film. From music videos, to commercials, to short fictional films, to reality shows, to documentaries, he's kind of done it all. No matter how many times I encounter it, I'm always pleasantly surprised that there's this general continuity among creative people. That they're always happiest when they're among the thing they're most passionate about. In Jeremy's case, that thing is a film set. He talks about the magic of being on one and how he'd much rather have a bad day on set than a good day at the office. Okay, let's get into this. Here's Jeremy Blake. Mike is hot. Mike's hot? Mike's hot. Is it recording? It's recording. That's what that means, dude. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work! Okay, so... Are we recording? Are we hot? Oh, we're hot, dude. All right. Mike is hot. Let's do it. All right, so Jeremy Blake. Hello. What's the first movie you ever watched that made you realize you wanted to get into filmmaking? Oh, my gosh. The first movie that I ever watched? <laughs> um, probably um, Home Alone. <laughs> Believe it or not. I think I was like six years old, five, five or six years old when that movie came out. And um, I remember I watched it, and this was like the height of VHS. This is like 1990, 91. This is the height of VHS. So I'm a five, six-year-old. I go to school. What do I do? I come home, and I pop in Home Alone, and I watch it. And I would just uh, – I would memorize all the lines in there. I originally wanted to be an actor. And I would just memorize the lines and read them over and over and over again. And I would, like, do the thing and do the face thing, go like, ah! And With the aftershave? That, no, I never. My dad didn't have any aftershave, so I never got a chance to use that. But yeah, yeah, the the scene where he does that and screams, or you know, uh, you had enough, or you thirsty for more, and I would repeat these things over and over again, trying to be like Macaulay Culkin's character so much so that uh, we actually had a couple weeks where my parents were like, "Okay, no more Home Alone." <laughs> <laughs> I think that was the first movie that I kind of started, like I really started crafting that kind of uh, obsessive analytic thing that a lot of filmmakers have that ability to look into something and kind of start dissecting it like how did he do that or what about this and then um i didn't 
really start looking into like films as a craft, like how cameras worked and how lights work and sound work until it was probably, I was out of high school. I think I was in college. My girlfriend at the time showed me a movie called Waking Life, which is, uh, they did this really cool thing where they rotoscoped, they, they shot it. And then they rotoscoped it out and animated over the characters. What's rotoscoped? Rotoscope is when you take an image and you kind of like cut it out. Um, you basically like make it black so you can expose something else over it. In film world, in the digital world, uh, you're just essentially like cutting it out and blanket it out. Or you can like, uh, and you just go through frame by frame cutting this very specific thing out. It's how they made spaceships fly in like Star Wars is they would rotoscope out the background and then they would overlay it in there and then they would just keep doing that over and over i didn't know that i always thought it was miniatures it is miniatures okay they would like they'd have to expose them over that so they would just like rotoscope this stuff out and sometimes they would use like um, green screen or blue screen for film blue screen has to do with like how the chemical properties this film is it reacts better with blue for keying stuff out I just remember watching this film and seeing like how they did all this animation and how it was shot and how they were doing kind of these like, I don't know, magic tricks, like how they made somebody float or when somebody talked, their eyes would get bigger. And it's like, whoa, that is so cool. And I kind of just started thinking, it's like, oh, I'm kind of interested in how they did that. And so I kind of had like a, I don't know, like a amateur kind of fascination with cameras. My dad had an old Canon AE-1 that shot film and I'd play around with that and, and then um you know just kind of played around with cameras and stuff and then it wasn't until i did a film called proper binge i got to act and i was so excited i was like yes i get to be an actor this is so cool and i'd done theater in high school but this was like on a film and about halfway through i kind of realized i was way more fascinated with, with what was going on behind the camera than in front of the camera i don't know if you've ever worked with actors but they're just like they go up they do their line they're like hey you want to go get out of here while they work and we can just go have fun and focus on our character? I don't know. You can't see that in the radio, but I'm doing air quotes. <laughs> I feel like that's like, a, uh, what is it, Les Grossman thing to say about <laughs> actors. <laughs> you got to spank them. Uh, it's, it's, it's definitely a different brain power that you have to consume yourself with when you are acting. Um, but I was way more interested with like our camera team and you know what they were doing and you know all the little magic behind it like hey why'd you set up that light there and it's like oh well you know it's a hair light and I'm like what's a hair light and they're like oh boy <laughs> we got one of these actors <laughs> That's such a funny um kind of reverse expectation cuz you always assume like everybody's getting into filmmaking to be the star like mm-hmm. Oh, I'm just a PA until I can you know get into acting I'm just doing background until I can get my breakthrough role but no, I'm I'm just doing acting so I can get into sound. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I that was not my expectation, and it it was weird because like I think a lot of people do. They're like, oh, if I can be an actor, that would be great, or if I could be the world's greatest director, that'd be great. I fell in love with being on set. I don't know what it is, but just everything about it. You have this group of very talented, very driven kind of odd people and they're all working together and they're talking and they're trying to make this thing come to life and i just i fell in love with being on set i I think even during proper binge it was like i don't care what i do i just love doing all of this and i took on so many different jobs i shot some b cam stuff i helped do uh what else i just kind of became like an impromptu grip anytime i wasn't in front of the camera i'd go up to mckenzie who was our dp and like what can i do and he's like take that light move it over there 
I built a set that we wound up driving a car through. I had some construction experience. Then they were like, we got to crash a car into a building. I'm like, I know how to do that. I didn't know what I was doing, but I just knew <laughs> I wanted to do that. I know how to crash stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I can make it look broke. Um, <laughs> gosh, I just fell in love with being on set and being part of this creative process. And I just like, I don't, I don't have to be the director. I don't have to be the big cheese. You know, I could do anything. I could be a PA. I go fetch water bottles. I'm just so, I'm just so in love with the whole process. I, I totally agree with you, Jeremy. I mean, my favorite part of the filmmaking process is being on set, which is funny because it involves the most, like, stress. Oh, my gosh. And the most, like, boring downtime that seems to never end. Like, being on set, you're either, like, bored out of your mind or stressed out of your mind. But it's so great. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and that varies depending on what your role is, obviously. Yeah. But, uh, God, I... I would take a 12-hour, 14-hour set day over any other aspect of filmmaking. Yeah. I totally, maybe, except maybe writing. I feel like that's a great bumper sticker. <laughs> that whole thing I just said? Yeah. <laughs> it's a long bumper sticker. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, would tell, I, would tell, I would tell all my friends, it's like, man, I'd, have, I'd, rather, I'd much rather have a bad day on set than a good day in an office. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, I don't even know how to describe it. It's almost like, especially when you work on like larger projects, like uh, uh, lar- like a longer short film or feature films. And I think that was what got me is um, my first project was a feature film. Most people work their entire careers to try to get to feature film territory. My first one was a feature film and it is a freaking marathon. We had this one weekend. We only had this set for like three days, 72 hours. And we wound up shooting for 58 hours we had 58 hours of production in that 72 hour period we were annihilated after that but we were we all loved it and it's like we're all trauma bonded after it we're all just like we're all warriors that kind of slogged it out in the trenches and of this creative field and it's like when you get out it's like you still see somebody that's still kicking and alive you're like i was there with that person and, you know, the 48th hour when the lights started flickering or I was there when the cops showed up and tried to shut the set down and our producer got in there and he says, no way, Jose, or something like that. Like we have all these experiences and stories. If you ever get around filmmakers that have worked together, if you haven't worked with them, they're like the worst people in the world because they have all these inside jokes and they're always telling that story. It's like, hey, you remember Command Shoe? And he's like, oh, I remember Command Shoe. It's like, yeah, the gentleman. You're like, mm. what is going on? <laughs> but we're like that. We just, we, we, we have this like trauma bond we were just we're just in this thing together and and then we have proof we have a movie and most people they'll watch the movie and they're like oh that was a good movie and i'm like you don't know you weren't there so was proper binge the first movie you worked on is that uh what you said yes i mean um we're not we're not counting the goodbye video that me and my friends made for a friend of mine in the seventh grade there was like there was some spice girls references in there and we did the macarena but (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm dating myself. <laughs> Proper Bench had a pretty lengthy history, right? Like it from the time that it was filmed to it being released was like yes, years, right? It, it was. Um, so the history on that, I found out about the project in 2009. I think, yeah, 2009. I just graduated from college, had no clue what I wanted to do. Um, and I was working for some family friends and <laughs> I literally saw a flyer on the cork board at the gas station I was working at saying like, want to be an actor? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, well, we got news for you. And they're talking about this whole thing and they were having auditions like literally right down the road. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, you know, I've done auditions before, but I've never done movie auditions. So I went and looked in on it. 
And uh, I got casted for this role. And then, man, it was probably another three years before they got the funding together to even like attempt this. Mind you, a lot of us weren't getting paid. The funding was mostly like affording new gear, uh, securing locations, uh, building a set so we could crash a, you know, an AMC Eagle into it and all this other stuff. But a lot of us like foregoed pay. So it's the summer of 2012 before we started rolling out. Like the directors were like, that's it. Our marriage just can't take this anymore. We need to make this movie. <laughs> and, and so we're like, and by then, um, as far as the actors went, there was only me and Barrick Cook and Ron Holmstrom, which were the ones that were casted in 2009 that were still attached to the project. Everybody else had like kind of moved on or, you know, uh, had, had given up. And then we filmed that in 2012. We wrapped out in uh, September. And I don't think there was a cut of it uh, available for people to watch until, gosh, I want to say it was four more years, 2016. 2017 maybe yeah it, it, it had been through a pretty lengthy post-production cycle mostly due to technological limitations and then just post is tough uh, anybody that's worked on any film if you are not an editor by trade post is a nightmare and the directors were editing it which just makes it even tougher because it's your baby so everything that you change on it it's like plucking a finger off of your child or killing your babies arm. yes exactly literally killing your babies which is an industry term <laughs> or kill your darlings kill your babies yeah and t- unless you have that kind of that uh i don't know observer point of view where you can look in there and be like well no this doesn't make sense to me it's hard to get through that or it's kind of hard to understand like contextually why doesn't this make sense? It's like, I was there for the whole thing. I understand this all. And it's like, well, it makes sense to you because you were there and you wrote the thing and you understand it. And it's part of your brain now. And it's part of your life. But Joe Blow audience member over here, he's lost. You need to figure out how to streamline this. So it took a while. You've done a lot of different kinds of work in filmmaking from short films to commercials, to reality shows, to documentaries. Do you prefer anyone in specific? I love narrative. Uh, like feature films or short films, anything with like a story. I love doing narrative work um, because you have uh, so much time is taken for like the creative goodies, as we like to say, like, how do we make this look moody? How do we make this look dark? How do we make this look happy? How do we make it look sad? How do we make it sound this way? And there's all these different mechanisms that are in place that are trying to make you feel something so that we don't have to tell you. And I really enjoy doing that. I kind of like, I kind of like playing around with those things and, and watching other people play around with it. And that's where a lot of magic stuff happens. Uh, commercials uh, are fun too, like that, but it's, it's also rudimentary and quick, but commercials pay really well. Yeah. <laughs> Reality, reality's fun, but it, it doesn't it doesn't really water my soul as much as narrative stuff does. Yeah, I think reality television, I think it's probably safe to say it's the lowest common denominator in American <clears throat> culture, huh? It's um you know, it's it's funny because like we as Alaskans, we're like we look at reality TV and we're like, Man, they're making us look like idiots. Oh my gosh, I can't believe they do that. Ah. But to the rest of the world, that's their little that's their little keyhole. That's how they see that's how they get a little taste of like what it's like up here and and like my dad moved up here and he's got an awesome story he's got a very um he's got a very simple but awesome story about why he moved to alaska he's he grew up in long island new york one of the most crowded places on planet earth 
and he hated it. He's like, I don't like being around this many people. And he read Jack London's Call of the Wild mm -hmm. and just how Jack London went through all that stuff. And he read Robert Service poetry, you know, the Bard of the Yukon and about that. And it just painted this wonderful image. And he's like, gosh, I wish I could go see that place. So he signed up for the military and he says, I don't care what you do with me, but I have to wind up in Alaska. So they sent him to Phoenix, Arizona for like two and a half years. <laughs> um, so, but he finally made it up here and this was like, this was like everything that he imagined and that was painted. And so I think reality TV is like, those are the kind of, those are the novels, the serial novels of our day where people can kind of look in and, and peek at these people's lives. And the thing to remember is, is like a TV screen is only, you know, so big and there's only so much that you can fit in there and you can't overload it. Otherwise nobody would watch it. So you kind of have to pick and choose the elements that you highlight. And so naturally some stuff gets left out. There's nothing that was is as good an experience as being there. A lot of people, this is their chance to kind of daydream about maybe what it would be like to be a cabin builder in Alaska or, or a fisherman in Alaska or, or run the Iditarod. I, I respect it for what it is, but I totally get where a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, no, moral decay. You know, I think as, as an Alaskan watching an Alaskan reality television show, I think what it is is the reality of Alaska is so much different than the romanticized version. Yes. And you you struggle through January and February. Mm -hmm. You know, you you struggle through these these periods of of like the the harsh seasons. And then once we reach um once we reach summer, you know, once we reach June, it's like we we deserve June, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. No, I, I, I totally agree. And yeah, it's like, yeah, for the people that are living it, and same thing would be said about New York City. I mean, New York City's got this romanticized, you know, glorious look where it's like, oh, it's the Big Apple. But I imagine there's probably 7 million people that live there and be like, oh, this place, mm -hmm. uh, they don't get it. Parking is a nightmare. I would just caution anybody that anything that you see on television or in the theater screen, it's a, it's an interpretation. It's a story that's being told to you. It never take it for it being truth, you know, and maybe some documentaries and stuff where they like they give you the facts and they want you to make a decision for yourself. But, you know, that's as close as we can get. The, the only thing that'll give you the whole truth is you actually being there. That's funny. I always see that as being like the the worst uh, aspect of reality mm -hmm. TV and documentary filmmaking is that they're trying to capture the truth when through like the technology of filmmaking that's essentially impossible mm -hmm. to the degree that it, it tries to which is why I prefer fiction because there's not that standard that you have to meet exactly but there's a, still like a truth you're trying to to get through there and that is like the the hardest thing as a a creator is to like try and get that truth out there. And that is where the most fun is. I agree. Yeah. I, that's, and that's another reason why I love narrative so much. It's like, I want someone to feel sad. And it's like, you just kind of unpack your toolkits mm -hmm. from your experience with filmmaking. It's like, what words can I say? What frames can I use? How can I light this to make the audience feel this way? And it's like, man, if you get a 70% success rate with it, it's like, yes, I did it. Yeah. You'll never get 100% of people on board. There's always going to be one person like, I don't get it. What, <laughs> what's so great about Star Wars? You're all weird. And, you know, and that's a lot of people detonate over that. Like, you don't, oh my gosh, we're on. And it's like, well, it's, it's an opinion. It's a personal taste opinion. Maybe he sneezed through the good parts. I don't know. But yeah, it's just, you'll never get 100% of the people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
since there aren't many filmmakers in Alaska, you kind of have the opportunity to create your own narrative and set the bar. I mean, what do you think about that? So I think uh, one of the glorious things about this state as far as being a filmmaker is, is um, you have your own freedom to tell your story however you want to, whether it includes Alaska or not. Like some filmmakers want to use Alaska as their backdrop. Others, not so much. You know, they just want this isolated place to kind of carve out their own story. I feel like a lot of the stuff that I tend to get drawn towards tries to incorporate some element of this state that I have witnessed or have coped with or have dealt with. And I feel like that kind of gives me a little bit of rocket fuel to kind of get behind the project and kind of take it where it needs to go. In that sense, um, I'm a creative person, but I usually when I get attached to a project or I do something, I'm probably in like one of the least creative elements, which is record sound. Um, but I still try to put my mark on it. Like I try to, I try to find a way to record it that is true to the moment or how I think somebody who should sound for that. But in the same sense too, I always want to give the editor the options to play around with it. I guess, I guess maybe to take us in a different direction, I- how long have you been involved in the Alaska film scene? Let's see. I started working on Proper Binge in May of 2012. So, yeah, I'm pushing about seven years now. And uh, and it wasn't just like I did Proper Binge and then I just kind of like sat around and did nothing. Like I started shooting um, concert shows and music videos uh, with Mackenzie Banbury uh, right after that. And then I kind of I, I found out about this thing called OPN open projector night, which is where there were other filmmakers that were working and they had this huge cabal of people that all worked together and they all knew each other. They had nicknames for each other and they'd done these projects and they were established. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is so cool. And so I got to start hanging out with them and and working with them. And I kind of realized very quickly that it's like, well, a lot of these guys are working professionals. Like they work on these reality shows or they get whisked away on these secret spy missions to go work on these commercials or other projects all over the United States, sometimes the world. Kind of that mentality of uh, one for them, one for you. Yeah. And I was like, man, I got to I got to get to know these guys. So like anytime they were like, hey, we need this or does anybody know how to do this? I was like jumping in there and trying to help them out and get to know them and try to learn the system. And and, uh, you know, I I showed up. I did good work and everybody seemed to like me. So anytime one of them uh, was so busy, they couldn't take a job. They, they would start being like, hey, you should try this. Go apply for this. And uh, I actually got my, <laughs> my first job doing that. Um, my first real paid uh, job was uh, I was working as a production assistant on Kids Bop 26. Nice. <laughs> no joke. Uh, Disney brought their kids up here and they filmed them on an airplane. They filmed them at the Denina Center. And um, the one. Do you remember per- any songs that were on that? Oh my God. Katy Perry's Dark Horse is still seared into my mind. <laughs> um, that and what was it? Uh, I, I don't even remember. It was like. This is going to be the best day of my life. Do, 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 do. And this is the, this is the, um, the albums that children would sing yes. like top 40 songs, yes. right? They would pick the top 40s. Um, they changed some of the swear words around to something a little more fluffy, uh, which was weird because like, I think one of them, they did Radiohead's Creep. And it's like, when you hear a bunch of kids singing Radiohead's Creep, it's like, dude, there's some problems going on there. It's like, gosh, it just takes on a whole new depressing tone. But I feel like having worked on that project, you should use a song from that album 
in one of your videos? Oh my gosh. I don't know. Like I, a horror movie. Oh, oh, um, yeah, no. Um, kids singing Katy Perry's Dark Horse would probably, like, I could do a slasher flick. To, or I could just do, like, one of those absurd gonzo fight scenes. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, that are so popular. What was it? Um, the Kingsman didn't they do Freebird where he's like just beating the crap out of everybody in the church? Oh yeah, it's yeah, that. Yeah. It's that kind of. It's that absurdist thing that I, I want to say. Um, Quentin Tarantino kind of popularized it with like yeah, yeah. cutting the guy's ear off to um, Steeler's wheels stuck in the middle with you. Mm-hmm. Everybody's like, well, we'll just let's, uh, let's beat people up. I think uh, the movie Kick Ass they got like this twelve year old girl slaughtering people to the banana song. You know, yeah. she's like going around cutting people's heads off. It's all la, 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 la. Is that Chloe Grace Moretz? Yes, Chloe yeah. Grace Moretz. Yeah. <laughs> you were talking earlier about how you've kind of become the sound guy, which is how I kind of first heard about you. You're, you're the sound guy in town. I'm one of a handful of sound guys in the town, but uh, or the state, actually. How do, you, how do you feel about that? I mean, because you are definitely more than just the sound guy. I, well... Anybody that knows me um, outside of just my sound guyness capacity knows that I'm I'm very capable. I, I do a whole bunch of other stuff. When I got started freelancing, I was trying to be a freelance camera operator, which is a heavily saturated market up here. Like anybody that picked up like a GH4 is like, I'm a DP operator, and it's like, oh gosh. So it took a it would take a lot of skill and a lot of wherewithal to kind of make your way there. And I was still doing work, but. A lot of times sound is like kind of easily forgotten and neglected. It's like, who's standing around? Give them the boom pole. Okay, here you go. Actually, one of the first projects I tried to direct um, was this little spy, fun little spy whodunit thriller called Achilles. And we never got it done because audio was literally getting passed to whoever was available. And they were like recording or not recording. And we weren't slating anything. And we basically wound up with just this garbled mess. We had like... 300 video clips and 390 audio clips and it's like i don't have nobody has the time to go through this and figure this out and it can that really burned me like i remember thinking, like man i gotta understand this better so i started working with audio on my own time and i was like watching videos and reading up on stuff and then I would hear something about a short film that was going on. I'd show up there and I'm like, hey, he's doing audio on this. And like, well, nobody. And I'm like, you you guys don't understand. So I would, I'd go borrow some equipment. I'd jump in there and start doing it. And the everybody would come back to like, oh my gosh, it sounds so great. Thank you so much. So I kind of started cutting a niche for myself just doing that. Like the, the traumatic pain that I had in losing my baby here. Um, made me better at so that it would never happen to somebody else. And then people just kept like recommending me out. And then I got a, I got a big break on um, Chad Carpenter's Moose the Movie. Um, they were looking for an audio person. And they're like, oh, we'll pay you X amount of dollars for two months, you know, three months worth of work. And it's like, man, I can't do that. I can't take off time for work for that. So I kind of went back and forth with them and I negotiated a deal that um, basically allowed me to buy some serious audio gear. Like, don't get me wrong, all that money went into gear. I starved for those three months trying to keep my head above water, but I I, I invested all in these, like, top-tier audio gear. 
I just kind of started building it out from there. It's like now I had the medium core toys so I could get the medium core jobs and I saved up and then I get the hardcore toys so I get the hardcore jobs. Yeah, before I knew it, there were some big wigs that would been working for like National Geographic and Discovery Channel and doing all these heavy reality shows. And it's like I kept bumping into them on set and we'd kind of we would counter bid on these different jobs. And, uh, you know, if I got the job, I wouldn't see them. And if they got the job, well, I would get brought on as like an AC because of my time working as a camera operator, I still knew a lot of people that are like, oh yeah, he's a good guy. You definitely want to have him around. So I'm kind of all over the place, but uh, a lot of the people that have seen me work have seen me doing like some heavy location sound. And that's why I get known as the sound guy. So for someone like myself, who's not familiar with the, the scene here, who should I be paying attention to? Gosh, there are so many talented um, people that are that are just kind of looming around all over the place here. I would recommend, and I'm not trying to plug my own little thing here, but um, anytime that there's a film competition, like the 24-hour film Royal, which will be coming up here soon at the end of April, I would recommend going out there and kind of, because that'll give you a good taste of like who's working with who and what projects are going on and um, just kind of like who does what. But uh, I know Joshua Brandstetter's got quite a good crowd with him, and uh, he's always <laughs> he always turns out stuff that just you know kind of makes us giggle and laugh. I've had a couple of students that have graduated out of the the King Tech High Film Program that I teach that are you know just full of promise. I think the ones that won the judges' choice for the five day film royal uh, were some students that came out of mine. They did a uh, like a modern Vincent Van Gogh piece. Uh, is it? Um, Jennifer Chang and Nathan Shuttleworth, two very talented uh, videographers and directors that came out of my program. And then, of course, uh, they got these guys, Kendall's, I think. Do you guys, do you guys sell trucks? Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. I'm kidding. Uh, Quick Dash Films with uh, John and James Kendall. Those guys uh, constantly putting out stuff that just makes I like me how laugh. you're talking about John like he's not right here. Oh, hey, John. <laughs> oh, hey. Hey. That's me. I thought it was the other one. <laughs> no, they do. Uh, no, seriously, I'm I'm always uh, impressed with their writing and their execution. Like I, every time I watch one of their films, I'm just like, all right, here it comes. Is the twist? Is it going to make me laugh? Is it going to make me cry? What are you going to do? Come on, I can't wait. Mm-hmm. No, and there's always and there's a whole bunch of other people. Like sometimes they'll they'll take a year off or you know they'll do a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but. They all seem to know each other, and um, that's the cool thing about these film competitions. You can literally be anybody, yeah. and you can come. You can come in with like absolutely no knowledge and try out for one of these things, make a film, and you can get in there and talk with these people and start networking mm-hmm. and figuring out like who does what. And it's like, man, I wish I was better at like, for example, I wish I was better at sound. Duh, come talk to me. That was kind of something I had to work on. Is like I think a lot a lot of people were like, oh. He is Sound Lord, Jeremy, do not talk to him. And it's like, I had to go out of my way and be like, no, next time you work on something, call me up. It's a, it, it's a very friendly and open community. I think some people have this idea where it's like, oh, it's like Hollywood, you know, nobody's going to give you an inch, you know, nobody's going to give you the time of day. And it's like, no, a lot of us are doing this because we love it. And when you do something because you love it, you're more apt to share it because you want other people to get in there. Like, we're not making millions of dollars. We're not trying to defend our islands. It's like, we want to make better filmmakers. We want as many people on this boat as we can fit. Mm-hmm. So I would go to the Open Projector Night stuff um, maybe like five or six years ago. And 
I never really got into into the community. You know, I knew a couple people, but I just never sunk into it. Then I moved away for a couple of years, and I came back, you know, like a year later, or I'm sorry, a year ago. And the community seems totally changed and big and open, and everybody works with everybody. And yeah, like you say, it's like you're making a movie. All about like, what do you need? And it's it's pretty great. Mm-hmm. Like I spent four years in LA. Like, oh, I'm gonna make it into the industry, and there's just so much competition there, and so mm-hmm. many people are just like fierce and hungry. They'll they'll knock you aside because they have to. But mm-hmm. here, it's just like we don't have to worry about all the competition. We just want to make movies. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. Yeah, and that's something to keep in mind like like what we do like some of us do you know local film work or work on commercials or do other you know stuff but a lot of the films that we do it's like it's a passion uh you're not going to get rich doing it but you're going to have a great time you're going to learn some cool stuff and you know if you do have that spark and that hunger you know it'll help get you trained up to maybe go make an attempt and make a stab, you know, go make a stand somewhere else. There's plenty of people that started out in the local film community up here that are doing great work down in LA or Colorado, Washington, Houston, uh, Atlanta right now that got their start here. DK Johnston, um, came out of like the journalism program at UAA and he was a huge advocate for, you know, like OPN and Alaska filmmakers and just trying to get as much activity and buzzing going on here as possible. And, you know, when the tax incentive disappeared, uh, you know, he was in a position where he's just like, he's like, I cannot, he's like, I have to work more to make a living. It's like, and I can't do that in my state of Alaska anymore. What was this, the tax incentive? What happened once upon a time in the state of Alaska, uh, there was a program funded by the state that basically said, uh, if you spend money on a movie production up here, um, this office would cut you a tax break. I think it was up to the tune of like 40% for every dollar that you spent up here. Now, uh, major motion Hollywood picture, um, you know, they spend a lot on salaries. But there's also a lot of fall off on like housing and materials and food. And that's what the state was trying to capitalize on. And they were trying to kind of market Alaska as the next, uh, the uh, what do they say, the Vancouver of the North, Vancouver, mm-hmm. Canada, and uh, has a huge film following right now. I think uh, some major movies have been filmed down there. Was it uh, Judge uh, Dredd and like uh, the new RoboCop, the 2014, 2015 RoboCop was filmed okay. down there? Or maybe it was Toronto. <laughs> um, but there's been like a huge – and Alaska at one point was trying to capitalize on that. And so they had this tax incentive. We had a couple of feature films come up here, try it out. And then uh, the state nixed it because it was obviously a boondoggler because it – you know, for reasons. Oh, um, man. Name some names. Come on. <laughs> Get into it, dude. Now. The fact of the matter is, is that um, it was seen within the government as not a viable resource for this state. So um, it was considered tax waste and just, you know, a boondoggler. And so uh, there was a certain senator that kind of made it his mission to completely cut it out of existence and mm-hmm. he succeeded. And so when that went away, um, the lights kind of went out for the big fish feature films. So I think there are a lot of drawbacks to pursuing a creative career in Alaska, including remoteness and relevancy. You need to be where everything is happening in order to be part of it. So for instance, I've talked to other creative people in Alaska, and one thing I've noticed 
is that after trying to make it big, by that I mean working on a national or global scale, there's a tendency to eventually find solace in the fact that they've made an impact locally. So they're, they're kind of, they're happy with that as they've gotten older and can kind of look back. So I guess my question is, what is the reality of being a filmmaker in Alaska? Is it as a hobbyist or can we realistically see the next, say, Spielberg or DiCaprio coming from here? Well, personally, um, with the way distribution technology is going and the miniaturization of filmmaking equipment, I think anything is possible. Uh, we are kind of, we are still in the wake of this sonic boom of uh of the technology that's become available. I mean, to give you an, uh, an idea, if you were trying to do the kind of productions that, uh, you know, Quick Dash and the Kendalls were trying to do 15 years ago, uh, it had cost you, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. And now a uh, ragtag group of high schoolers and one of them's got a DSLR and the other one's got a little Zoom recorder uh, can make that kind of caliber of films. So while that definitely opens it up and makes it more readily available, it also we have this flood, this deluge of content that's hard to get through. Um, so your Spielbergs and your James Camerons, um, unless they've been plucked up by the studios and lifted from obscurity, they're not going to get noticed. And it's really hard. And it might be one of these things like it's not until the dust kind of settles down or distribution systems kind of work their way out that we are going to be able to see that that level, that caliber. You got to remember Hollywood had a pretty tight grip on the kind of technologies and the production methods that they used for a long time. That's why those films were so popular because there were so few of them. Now we have an entire ocean from YouTube, Vimeo, uh, all these other sites of people making their content and putting it out there, and it's it's never ending. Mm-hmm. So that kind of I, I, I mean, it definitely loses like some of the all empowering shock value of it. Like you know, oh, I could be a millionaire. But what it does open up is like you can have a local following. You know, you can have five thousand, ten thousand people that watch your films and enjoy them. And, you know, you might get a little bit of monetization out of that, but I don't think you'll ever, I don't want to say you'll never make a living off of it. I just think it would be hard. And if you ever did get to a level where you did make a living off of it, your next step would have to be go someplace else where you can network with more people that can up your production value and up your game. And, um, you know, those are some very dedicated and fierce, hungry individuals, and they tend not to be a peer. Uh, Alaska... Alaska is a lovely place and a wonderful place, but, you know, a lot of people come up here to kind of, you know, enjoy nature and, you know, they have a, there's a different mentality to it. I'm not saying we're lazy. We're just, we just have a different way of going about it. We Money, value different things. We do value different things. You know, we don't need, we don't need a Maserati in our garage or we don't need this like, you know, half a million dollar house up on the. We bluffs. need a snow machine though. Yes, we do. <laughs> I will I will definitely plop down $500 for that indie light that's got a million miles on it and it will go. So, yeah, the values are a little bit different. I see no reason why you couldn't be able to be like a hobbyist or even a professional filmmaker up here and still make a, a you know, a comfortable living. It can be done. But as with anything, nobody's going to give it to you. You got to go out and fight for it and you got to be able to fall down and get back up and dust yourself off and just keep just keep moving keep pushing keep trying but the thing is like with alaska there's there's so much like um 
kind of untapped like character to the land here. Like I feel most movies that I see about Alaska really just kind of touch the surface of it. Um, and I, I don't know, I guess a lot of that is probably the struggle of people who have lived here and know Alaska and can kind of tell it the way they just, maybe they just never make it all the way to the top to, to get those movies made. Um, but there's, I mean, we were just talking the other day about um, the the VPO story that I read. That's that's a movie. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the village uh, police officer. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. VPSO, right? Village Patrol Safety Officers. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the story with this woman was that she, you know, didn't have you know a uniform, just drove around her truck like. She responded to, like, suicides uh, attempts. Like, that was, like, her main thing. Like, active suicides. Yeah. yeah. And, like, um, and there's just, like, all this bunch of kind of, like, really subtle, crazy stuff going on. And then it just unfolded into this crazy story about this one suicide that turned out to be a homicide. And then, like, her son got wrapped up into it. And then she found out, like, her partner had tampered with the evidence. And it was all this crazy stuff and just reading this story I'm like this is a movie right here Mm -hmm. and this is like deep in the heart of Alaska this is in like a remote village where you've got like a 20 30 something woman who is just kind of appointed to be the cop of this town because nobody else would do it and just gets wrapped up in all this stuff like that's like that's like Fargo or something but Alaska I I find I love stories like that. Ordinary people in extraordinary situations. And, uh, you know, that does, I do see a lot of, not like that caliber, but there is a lot of stuff like that up here in Alaska. People just, you know, doing something and then getting kind of swept up in an extraordinary situation and having to make do. Are there examples of films? like the one John was explaining, like that, that that story being told, because I think that that's one of my main gripes about Alaska is we're not really telling Alaskan stories and they're really, like, they're right in front of us. And I'm speaking from a journalism point mm-hmm. of view where I feel like it is so hard to be a boring journalist in Alaska, but there are so many journalists that accomplish it. <laughs> so many. I mean, it's embarrassing because because it is a reflection on us as Alaskans. I guess going on you brought up Fargo, John, mm-hmm. um and that that movie is a midwestern movie. You know, that that takes place there, right? It has that's where its soul lives. Are there any films where you watch it and you're like that is so Alaskan? I started I'm trying to remember the movie and I don't want to I think it was called The Dark. Hold the Dark. Hold yeah. the Dark. There was definitely some elements in there that kind of touched on it um that were like the remoteness and how it kind of being remote and being alone and like being in this situation where you don't you know being isolated kind of really started you know and how that kind of changes your perception uh is an interesting one there was a movie what was it robin williams insomnia insomnia that was another. I think that was one of the first movies I remember watching that really kind of addressed the hey, <laughs> it's light time all the time in the summertime and it's dark during the winter. Mm. What does that do to people? I don't mm. know. Let's find out. But that was obviously that was a very Hollywoodized version of it and very superficial. But the fact that they even kind of started touching on that 
And it's such an interesting concept with such a beautiful backdrop. I mean, here's Alaska. You know, you're in the majesty of the world. You have mountains. And here are these people that are, like, losing their minds because they're just bathed in sunlight all the time and they can't sleep and their faculties are falling apart. You know, it's kind of an an interesting thing, you know, literally too much of a good thing. Mm Mm-hmm. I feel like with both of those movies, I felt like they kind of just touched on the surface. Like, Hold the Dark kind of felt more Alaskan than any Alaskan movie I'd seen, but it also definitely felt, I could tell it was an outsider's perspective. Yes. I almost want to say it's a movie called The Edge. Oh. That I thought was the most Alaskan one. Is that with uh, Alec Baldwin and yeah, Anthony Hopkins? Hopkins? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Bear, that the, movie's pretty silly to me, actually. <laughs> I, I mean, I haven't seen it since I was like 13. And I remember just being like, yeah, the woods, bears, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then I heard it was filmed in like Washington or something. Canada? Like, yeah. <laughs> because of the tax break. <laughs> but it's a pretty silly movie. I, it is, yeah. It's a pretty, me and uh, I, I've, I've made jokes uh, since I've seen it about that joke yeah. or about that movie. Hmm. I will say, I do know, um, as with any news, there has to be an audience for it, and there also has to be a moneyed interest that's not going to come after your head Mm -hmm. if you get into something. Um, And one of the big draws to Alaska is this, there is this tourism idea of Alaska. It's very tourist and very prepackaged, you know, oh, come up and see the ocean, see the glaciers, see the trees. And... I think there's a lot of people that are kind of afraid as storytellers to kind of push too far and tread onto that and get realistic with it. And there are probably other groups uh, and, you know, townships that are just like, no, don't, don't, no, 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 don't, don't do that. Don't talk like that. And, you know, for a new filmmaker, a young filmmaker to come out there and want to tell a story and have people appreciate it and have the entire world fall back on you going like what are you doing don't say that don't do that it can be it can be daunting it would take a really tough uh it would take a really tough and uh, somebody with a lot of fortitude to be like nope this is the story i'm going for and you know i'm gonna push forward with it so all I think- it really takes is one person though because then everybody else will follow suit yes but very rarely do we remember the first person that took that step uh, it's always like the third or fourth or the more popular person. Mm-hmm. Very rarely do we remember the first person that took that brave step and ventured into it. But you are correct. All it takes is one person to kind of go out there and show a, show a real raw story. Uh, what is that? Spotlight? The movie Spotlight? Oh, you guys amazing. as journalists are probably yeah, yeah. Like, favorite movie. Oh, okay. And it's specifically Boston. Yes. You know, it's like you, you watch that movie. There's this part where uh, the new editor, he's talking about reading... Um, you know, it's called the Great Gambino. You mm-hmm. know, he's like, I gotta, I gotta brush up on my Boston so mm-hmm. I can understand it. And there's just there's little pieces in that movie that are people in Boston probably watch it and they're like, that gets to the soul of Boston. You right. know, and that's kind of what I'm talking about as far as a movie that is that gets to the soul of Alaska. And you brought up Hold the Dark, which I've brought up before on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And there's this part in it where uh, this woman says to uh, to the guy, he's like uh, talking about the darkness and she's talking about how the darkness gets inside you. And, and the way that she talks about it is like very specifically Alaskan. Yeah. And in addition to that, she uh, the guy is talking about how his, his daughter works at the university in Anchorage. And the woman looks at, at him and he says, that place is not Alaska. And being from Alaska, 
that gets to the soul of Alaska because mm-hmm. that's how people talk about Anchorage. You know, you're going to town. You're you you have people who come from the villages and they go to I don't know, PacSun, or they go to the mall or whatever, right? And they keep the tags on their clothes mm-hmm. just, just to, to, as, as this kind of souvenir of, I went to town. Yeah. You know, and, and that right there, if you put that in a movie, just that little piece, that mm-hmm. would get to the soul of Alaska. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess I just don't really see that in, in a lot of the stuff that, I mean, a lot of the films about Alaska or, or the representations of Alaska, I should say. Did either of you see the uh, Big Miracle or any of the other movies that were filmed up here when they had the tax incentive? I saw a Big Miracle. How was that as a representation of Alaska? You know, it was pretty – it's a little saccharine. Mm-hmm. You know, it's definitely like um, there are some things that they kind of touch on. Um, but it's also a period piece too because it takes place in like, you know, I think it was like the mid-80s when this yeah. happened. Which is weird for me because there are certain parts in the like Anchorage. You look around and it's like, oh, it's still communist Russia time. Okay, <laughs> you know, uh, there are some older sectors. It's like, you know, it's like it, there's a little bit of I wouldn't say nostalgia, but it did. It just kind of looked at like look at it and like, gosh, yeah, that reminds me of town. I don't know as an outsider. I don't know if that felt fully Alaskan. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, some people I imagine it's like, look, ice, whales, nineteen eighties architecture, Alaska. Yeah, yeah. If that's if that's all they need, but to me, there were certain things in there. It's like, I think uh, there was like a restaurant scene, uh, and <laughs> just just like mustard amber paint all over the place in this one place and everybody's wearing their boots and their car hearts and they're eating food and it's like I've been in you know I've been in restaurants like that that's a very to me that's in a very an Alaskan thing mm-hmm. you know like going to the roadside and everybody's still got their snow gear on while they're eating you know because hey you gotta go back out why take it off you know what I thought was a good representation of of Anchorage as far as what I've heard it was like in the 80s was frozen ground hmm. So I watched the extra features of that movie, and I actually bought the movie on DVD because of the extra features. Mm-hmm. And there's um, the director is talking about how he he looked at old photos and old video taken of of Fourth Avenue um, in Anchorage, mm-hmm. and the places that he wanted to be representative of like the bars and the the strip clubs and kind of the nightlife of that time. Yeah. He's like, they were so dark. You know, we wouldn't have been able to film these because of, you know, the white balance or whatever on older cameras. Mm-hmm. And so he said uh, this one, one scene they shot, they had like a light, like a bare bulb in the corner or something. And it's like, it was even too dark. So we had to lighten it up a little bit because even in, you know, whatever year that was, which was mm-hmm. pretty recent, the white balance or whatever w- still wouldn't allow them to shoot in the dark. And I'm yeah. like, that, that attention to detail is like, you know, <laughs> is pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, gosh. I don't know. I hear so many. I hear so many stories about the glory days, mm-hmm. the eighties. It, it's it's it, it comes in two. It comes in two waves. The uh, wow, it was money raining from the sky, and we could do whatever we wanted to. And then there were other people like, dude, this was the wild west. Mm-hmm. It was nuts. You know, people wheeling and dealing. Yeah, blowing their pay- coming into town, blowing their paychecks as fast as possible. You know, all that stuff. It was basically anything goes. Like this was the this was the oasis town. I talked to uh, Mike Gordon, who was the he founded Chilkoots, and mm. uh, so uh, he has an episode. But he talks to some extent about the cocaine that was in Anchorage. Just <laughs> it was just massive. You know, I asked him if 
people ever did cocaine on the bar top. And he's like, yeah, but I'd tell them to go to the bathroom or something. <laughs> I'm like, so they're still doing coke, you know, within right. coots. So, you know, it, it was because of all that oil money yep. that they were able to, you know, there was this influx of mm-hmm. cocaine. Yeah. I read a book called, when I was in, um, when I was in college, uh, I was doing my Alaska studies course and I read a book called Frigid Embrace that basically talked from the point when they found out that there was oil up in Alaska during the geological surveys back during World War II. Because anytime you're going to go fight uh, fight a war on some country, you, first thing you do is you send a geological survey team in so you can map out every square inch of the land and get it all figured out. And it was around that time that they figured out, it's like, man, there is a metric buttload of oil up north. Oh, too bad nobody's ever going to figure out how to get it out of there because you'd have to go across, you know, 1,100 miles of barren land and, you know, where temperatures are swinging all over the place. And, yeah, why would we do that when we just – this stuff just comes out of the ground? Well, you know, 1970s come along. We have this crazy oil crisis because the Middle East is like – OPEC is sh- shutting us out. And uh, all of a sudden the price of oil rises so high that they're like, you know – we could build this magic magic pipeline up there. And uh, and it just goes into all the details of, like, the oil companies that came together. And the original price, I think the original price was supposed to be, like, eight, no, $900 million is what it was supposed to cost. Like, the grand total was, like, $8 billion. Like, they woefully underestimated mm-hmm. how much money <laughs> was going to go into this. And just some of the hardships that they went through some of the mountain peaks they had to traverse and uh, get all this stuff out there. And it seemed like they said for every for every two people that they wanted in the field, they had to hire like seven of them because most of them would fail out or they would give up or they would literally train them for three weeks, get them tools in their hand, take them on a bus, open the door. They would step outside, look around and say, <laughs> nope, get back on. <laughs> like the turnover was so insane. Or people just, they'd get paid once and they'd go to town and like drink their paycheck away and never come back. Mm-hmm. Like it was just boomtown crazy. And uh, it, it, I think it the point it ended on was it talked about the Exxon Valdez oil spill. It's just kind of like the, the, the sauce on top of this story of excess and just this, you know, all the stuff that was going on. And, uh, you know, I just not sure where I was going with that. <laughs> You know, what it said to me was there's another story. I mean, in that whole uh, explanation that you just gave, I, I thought of like two, three different stories. You know, like you could you could write a – not write a story, but mm-hmm. there could be a film about uh, slope life. I yep. mean, I, I still haven't seen something like that that is true to form, yep. you know? It's uh, that, that's that's a tough one because in order for you to get into that, you'd have to, you know, you get into your testimonials and talking to people, especially if you're going to do it like a documentary style. Then you kind of also have to get the blessings of the different oil companies to, you know, show this footage and maybe get up there and film some stuff. And uh, it's uh, it's kind of a dirty business, and some of it's proprietary, and they may not be so keen on you going up there. I mean, you're talking about a company that spends a lot of money mm-hmm. to make themselves appear good in the public, you know, do a lot of positive PR. They're not just going to let anybody go up there and start filming that stuff. And if you did and you did it without their permission, well, what kind of what kind of libel and lawsuits are you opening yourself up to? You might be just be telling a story, but somebody else might see it as like smear campaign, negative advertising, mm-hmm. you know, and that's where you got to go to the courts. And I don't know about you. I don't got the money to hold out for, for a full-blown court assault. 
See, what I got out of the story that you're talking about is that's a narrative piece right there. Like yeah. talking about the oil boom in the seventies, like that's Deadwood, but in Alaska. Like <laughs> you make a series, you pitch that to HBO, and then, I mean, yeah, that could be awesome. But the cool thing too is like, especially nowadays, I don't. Um, I've been listening to a lot of synthwave music, so I think the '80s, the '80s vibe, you know, all that chip tune and VHS stuff, or even like Ready Player One, a lot of that '80s nostalgia stuff is mm-hmm. still very prominent. Well, in, it's, it's come back. It's come back. Well, because you know, those of us that have grown up in the '80s, well, hey, we're middle class citizens now. We mm-hmm. got incomes and we're spending stuff. Um, but I, I think I totally would watch a film, you know, late '70s or a TV show, late '70s, early '80s. That is kind of this like. Hell on Wheels, Deadwood, kind of mashup where it's like, yeah, they're they're going for the black gold. Yeah, and, and you, I mean, you set that in like the weather extremes of what, uh, Prudhoe Bay and all that kind of yeah. stuff, and you got Anchorage at that time, like yeah, you got human, you get these human conflicts, these human personalities conflicting with each other, and oh yeah, the weather's trying to murder you yeah. on top of it, and all those all the things that come with that. I would watch the shit out of this show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the thing is, you know there's going to be a scene where somebody chucks their coffee mug out the window and it freezes on the way down. Like, mm-hmm. that's one of the oldest, like, Alaska wife tells or whatever that there's been. I've always thought, like, that's got to be in a movie. Oh, I want to do the I want to do the, the ex machina where somebody's about to, like, kill somebody else and the polar bear comes and gets them. <laughs> like, I would just, I would just be like, yes, Arctic. Mm! <laughs> So we've talked a lot about Jeremy Blake, the filmmaker. That's me. <laughs> what about Mr. Blake, the teacher? Oh, boy, that guy. <laughs> Mr. Blake, the teacher. Well, um, I have – let me uh, bring it down a couple notches. I've been given this wonderful opportunity to teach film and audio at uh, – it used to be called King's, King's Career Center. Uh, we do went through a rebrand. Now it's called King Tech High School. I still refer to it as the school formerly known as KCC – because um, it's still got a lot. It still resonates well with a lot of people that went there. They're like, "Oh, KCC, I know that." I say King Tech High. They're like, "Huh?" But uh, just to give you a little bit of background, um, the program that I'm in used to be called Radio and Television. Uh, I was taught for a long time by a gentleman named Dan Sparkman. When he retired, a um, uh, gal that I've worked with, a wonderful filmmaker named April Frame, took it over and modernized it. So she rebranded it into film, audio, and uh, video production, and it went towards um, more nonlinear editing, storytelling, a lot of camera operating, stuff like that. So she wrote a curriculum for it and um, took it over. She did that for three years and decided to go back into the fold and go back into freelancing. And then uh, my friend, uh, Mackenzie Banbury, took it over for a year. And then um, went on to work on a drone recovery system for a company called Indemnus. And they're doing great things. Um, And the job came open. And April had asked me if I wanted to do it before and when Mackenzie took it. And at the time, I was like, I I was having a lot of fun (laughs) doing freelance work and traveling the world, being like, you know, the James Bond of sound. You get these phone calls and they're like, we need you. And I'm like, I'm there. (laughs) (laughs) Which sounds nothing like any of the James Bond. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. James, we need you to record the audio at this conference. (laughs) Yeah. So I I was still having a lot of fun running around doing that. Um, And then uh, Mac did it, and then he got another job. So the spot came open, like, really 
like there was only like three weeks before school started and they're like, okay, we need to hire somebody. And so my phone just blew up. I got like 10 phone calls from people who are like, Hey, I recommended you for this job, by the way, they're going to be calling you soon. And then they called me and they're like, Hey, are you available to teach this? And I was like, ah, I'll interview for it. I was in the middle of doing this shoot for Royal Caribbean cruises um, where they were going around and they were doing these really wonderful expose pieces on like different people in Alaska. Like the idea was, is like, if you go into Caribbean, uh, Royal Caribbean cruise and you come up to Alaska, these are the people that you would meet. And we talked about this one food, uh, this one lady who, uh, she wrote her own food column in this magazine and that's what she does. She travels around Alaska and eats different fish and tries all these different things and writes these reviews. Uh, there was another guy who does this, um, outdoor hiking or you know remote hiking service where they like fly you out to ruth glacier for 10 days and you go hike all over it and we followed him around and kind of heard his story and i was having a lot of fun doing that so i sat down i interviewed and they were just they were over the moon they were just like oh my gosh we have a real filmmaker (laughs) and i'm like did you what and uh, there's not a lot of (sighs) there's not a lot of us in this state that have the experience to teach that stuff and i think there's not a lot of people in the school district that have the experience like i think they were worried that somebody would uh they they would get like somebody who would just not know anything about it and give them a canned curriculum like here here is a camera you press the red button to record and i even told him when in my interview was like i never want to do that because so much of the learning that you do with filmmaking is the tangible stuff like when you actually get out there and just screw stuff up (laughs) And, you know, the learning process that's involved with that. And we're in this really interesting time where I can teach all that stuff. Like I can teach you how to um, write a script, how to do pre-production, how to plan everything, how to use a camera to shoot it, and then carry it over to the post-production process and how to edit it together so that when you do make a mistake over here in pre-production, you have to deal with it here in post-production. And hopefully (laughs) the next time it comes up you will have learned. So we did some negotiating and I finally, we finally fell on and we were just like, and it was like, okay, I will do it for this. And they're like, okay, we will give you this. So I was like, okay, cool. I was on the fence for it for a little bit, but cause I I couldn't quite make a decision, but that was, I couldn't find a reason why I shouldn't do it. Like it always came back to like, but I'm having so much fun, but you know, I'm living the life. I'm living the dream. But I could never find something that distinctly said, no, you'll never, you're not a good teacher. You can't do this. It was like, there was all these like stupid little selfish things. And and then I kind of thought, it's like, man, what would have happened if there was a program like this when I was in high school, you know, and I had taken it and there was somebody there that didn't know anything about film teaching it. Like, what would that have done to me? And it's like, so I, I, I told myself I'd give it a year to try it out. And I've absolutely, I'm, I'm having a great time with it. I really am. I enjoy taking these, uh, just very enthusiastic kids and they're very, they're, they're very bright. They haven't, they're still, they're still fresh. They want to try something or this is like, this is something new to them and they want to learn. So you get to fill them up with stuff and you get to watch them freak out and panic as they, you know, take responsibility for their first project. They're like, I don't know what I'm doing. And it's like, nobody knows what they're doing. Just go with it. Is that your response? <laughs> You're freaking out right back. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> I try not to, cause it's just, but I try to, I try to bolster them on and fill them with the confidence that they need. Cause a lot of times they're just like, 
I, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like, yeah, you do. We went over this stuff, you know, and you just ask them a few questions and you just kind of, you just kind of remind them to breathe and hopefully, you know, they'll be exposed to it enough that, uh, you know, that it'll, uh, it'll just kind of sink in. And then they, uh, the next time they do it, they feel more confident with it until by the end of the year, they're kind of firing back all these little quips and comments and they're, they're really loosened up. They're not these shy kids in this world anymore it's like they feel confident you know they express their opinions or you ask them it's like why'd you do this and i'm like well you know what i was trying to do is blah 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 instead of a i don't know so it's it's kind of it you know makes me happy how much um like formal training or education do you have in filmmaking or is it all just like uh learn on the day i am a proud graduate of YouTube University. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I have no formal training. I am a trial. I, I am a I am a product of trial by fire. Um, and yeah, um, I think I could I probably could have been a better filmmaker and film person had I went to college, but it just wasn't in the cards. Um, I'm really good at I'm really good at learning and trying something out before I actually commit, before I actually commit and do something like when I was getting started, somebody would be like, Oh, we want you to go on this job and run an X, Y, Z thing. And it's like, I've never heard of X, Y, Z before. And I would do some reading up real quick. And it's like, there's no way I can learn X, Y, Z before then. So I'm not going to take this job, but I would start reading up on X, Y, Z and I would cover it and I would go over it. And I would drill it. And if I knew somebody that had X, Y, Z, I'd go play around with it. So the next time I got that phone call, I was ready for X, Y, Z. Going off of that, you not having any formal teaching in film and now you are formally teaching film. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you say to your students who want to pursue a career in film? Like, what do you tell them is the next step? The next step that I tell them is go, that's a tough one because everybody's different. Every filmmaker is different. They have different desires. They have different needs. Um, And there's no, anybody that's been in this industry knows that there is no golden path, which one must follow. There are so many different things you could do. And there's so many interests that you have. You might be the next Casey Neistat, which at which point I would never tell you to go be a PA on a film set because that would not be conducive to you. Another one might be the next great animator to which I would not tell them go to full sale university so you can learn how to run camera. There's so many different ways that people uh, make films and have interests. And my thing is I try to figure out who's doing what and try to guide them in the right direction or at least kind of steer them in the right direction. But ultimately, and I hate saying this, it's a path that you're going to have to go forge yourself. Nobody's going to be able to say, ah, well, all you got to do is this and this and this. And, and you know what? You'll be president of movies one day. That's not how it works. And that's never how it's going to work. You're going to go out and find a situation it might be being a PA. It might be in the DP in the next Michael Bay film. I don't know. I wish the best for you. And you're going to have to work that situation and cope with it. And it's tough and it's confusing, can be frightening, but you will be a better person from coming through that. And you will know one of two things, whether you like it or whether you don't like it. If you like it, awesome. Keep going. If you don't like it, reevaluate, find something new or try something different. 
That's kind of the haphazard, you know, waddle into, you know, waddle into dismay and fire kind of mentality that I've had. And it's, it's been doing okay for me. And I feel like a lot of other people, uh, kind of operate in the same thing, especially in this industry. Um, but uh, one of the big things is never forget the connections you make, the people that you meet in here. We all ultimately at the end of the day, we all have the same goal, the same desire. It's like, man, we just love what we're doing. You know, we love different aspects about it. Or, you know, maybe we're just all set junkies. We're just like, I love being on set. I don't care what I have to do. I'll blow up balloons and tie them off and give them to the assistant director's kid. If that's all I can do on set, I want to be on set, (laughs) you know, and you just get this group of like crazy, neurotic, fun, motivated people. We all have anxiety or we all have our own thing that we're working through, but man, we all came together and we're working on this and we're just having the best time that we can. And it's, it's hard for me to say do X and Y and you will get to Z because that's not how it's going to work. Um, and that's probably, I hate saying that as a teacher because I am working in a profession right now that says, well, you get this certification and you go here and you'll be a carpenter in no time. And it's like, I just shake my head and it's like, I don't, I wish I had that answer for kids. And for some of them, I do. It's like, go to college, go to film school, find one that you like, and you will find, you will, you will find what you need. And that's because some of them are very educationally driven. They have to have the textbook. They have to have, um, that tactile knowledge and that safety blanket and that environment and make those connections. And then there are some of them that just stick, they need to go out and figure it out. It's funny. It's probably a little bit like journalism in that sense. And like specifically with the film industry, there is like a set of rules and how things work, mm-hmm. but there's also everything works like by doing the exact opposite. Like there's, I've heard so many things where people will say like, you should go to film school. That's how you get into film or no, don't ever bother going to film school. Just do it. Both paths like, you know, contradict each other, but they both work. And hearing like how you got into the industry stories they're so frustrating because like that method only worked for that person in, you know, those circumstances. Like somebody bumped into Spike Lee in a park and they struck up a conversation and he gave him a job the next day. Yep. So you're saying that we should all hang out in parks waiting for In Brooklyn, yeah. Yeah. I will say I will say this much and uh what I what I absolutely adore about making movies in this industry is that um it really does tap into the power of desire. If you desire something and you seek it and you throw everything that you have into it, it'll happen. Some people it'll happen tomorrow. Some people it'll happen in 15 years. I mean, look at me. I I worked on my first feature film when I was 28. You know, some people might look at that and be like, oh, lucky you fell backwards into making movies. And it's like, no, I... <laughs> I wandered the world for 10 years doing different jobs because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I knew I knew I was going to be good at something. I just didn't know what. And I did construction. I drove fuel trucks. And I ran cash registers. And I did all these other weird different things knowing that that's not what I wanted to do. Um, I could just feel it. And it wasn't until I got into this f- filmmaking that I felt it. Like it was, ah, man, it was like drinking water for the first time and you're just like oh my gosh and that carried me through and carried me forward and it continues to kind of carry me forward even on the really rough days where it's like oh my gosh what am i doing you know i just get into a room with other filmmakers and i start talking i I perk up and get really excited (laughs) 
man, if you want to make it happen, keep working at it. It will, it will happen or it won't, or maybe it will, or maybe you'll find something else along the way. The important thing is try, put yourself out there. Don't be afraid to go talk to people. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to just keep putting yourself out there and it's tough and it hurts and it breaks you and it hurts and you get all crunchy inside and bitter and mean sometimes, but dust yourself off keep working, keep putting it out there. And if you enjoy doing something, don't let anybody tell you not to do it. I can't stress that enough. There are so many people out there that are willing to point at you and tell you, no, you can't do that. Or you, you suck or this or that to make themselves feel better to cope with their own dismay or failures. Don't listen to them, you know, um, find a way to get around it and get those people out of your life. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Those people suck. Yeah. Yeah. Carl. <laughs> Freaking Carl. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been great, man. Yes. Thank you so much for having me out. I really Absolutely. appreciate it. You can support local grassroots journalism at patreon.com slash crude magazine. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a platform that makes it easy for you to support content that matters to our community for as little as $1 a month. This episode was written and hosted by me, Cody Liska for crude magazine. It was edited by John Kendall. Intro music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 